praying, this thought struck me. We're praying the Lord, Lord's Prayer together. We're all saying the same words, and hopefully we all have the same attitude of heart in that prayer. But that is truly fellowship and worship together as a congregation, the body of Christ unified, praying the same things and looking for the same outcomes. I mean, that's what really it's all about as far as being the body of Christ. So it's a great example that reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ, even as we pray that prayer together. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to go to verse 9 today. We've been looking at the six seals, or the seven seals, but six in Revelation 6. Last week, we began with the first four, the first four, what we call the horsemen of the apocalypse. And then today, we're going to... I. I I'd be challenged if we get beyond the fifth seal because I have a lot to say about it, but we'll try the fifth and sixth. We'll see how far we get. Um, but we're going to start by reading Revelation chapter 6. It should say, I think in the bulletin it says 9 through 11. I should say 9 through 17. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. So if we'll start at verse 9 in Revelation chapter 6, let's begin there. The Bible says, And when he had opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Father, again, we just come before you, laying ourselves before you, submitting ourselves to your authority. And Lord, as we look into your word now, we ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds and remove the distractions that may keep us from seeing the things that you want us to see today. Father, we know that your word is truth and we submit to its authority. You have told us that your word is the power that brings us to salvation. It is the power that helps us to live going forward in sanctification as your spirit does his work in us through the truth. And it is the power even of our worship as we worship in truth to you. So, Lord, I pray that as your truth is given to us today, that you would help us to see it, to understand it. Teach us those things that you want us to know. Lord, in the process, I don't want to be an obstacle, so please... Just use me as your instrument and speak through me. May we hear your truth today, not the opinions of mankind or some commentary, but your truth. 
And so, Lord, we just want you to be honored. We want your truth to be spoken. We want you to be glorified in this time. We want your work to be accomplished. So we give you ourselves. We give you this time for you to use, to do as you will. And we thank you for what you're going to do. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we got into Revelation chapter 6 last week, we looked at the first four seals. Now remember, the seals are the seals on the scroll, on the book, that Jesus Christ takes out of the hand of the Father on the throne in heaven. And he is the only one worthy to open these seals. And these, there's seven seals that bind this scroll together. This scroll being, in essence, the title deed to creation, to the universe. That has been usurped by Satan, and Satan is the prince of this world at this point. But Christ is reclaiming that, and he's reclaiming that through the judgments that are going to be revealed in this scroll. And this scroll starts in chapter 6 as the seals start to be opened, and then continues through six seals in Revelation chapter 6, and then all through the rest of Revelation, all the way up to chapter 19, as we open the seventh seal, then the seventh seal, there are seven trumpet judgments, and then there are seven bowl or vile judgments that are poured out, all as part of the seventh seal. And you're going to see, as we go through Revelation, that the judgments start to be compounded and increased in intensity and in frequency. And it's just going to be like one judgment upon another. But here we have the first four seals in the beginning of this chapter. And we've seen the first four seals, the false peace that is ushered in with the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation period. That's the first seal. That's the, the white horse. Then the red horse comes, and that signifies war that follows soon after as nations rise in rebellion against the Antichrist. Then there's famine and food shortage, which always follow war. And people are hungry, and there's controls, and there's rations, and all of these things that come with famine and food shortage. And then the last horseman, the pale horseman, is the horseman of death. And this is death upon one-fourth of the population of the world that comes by war, by famine, by the sword, by pestilence, by wild beasts. We saw that last week. So one-fourth of the people on earth are going to die, and this is in the first half of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years. We'll lose one-fourth of the population of the world. And we also looked, as we saw these four seals, at the parallels in Christ's prophecy as he taught in Matthew chapter 24 in what we call the Olivet Discourse, when he was describing what would happen at the end of the age. Remember, the disciples there asked him, Lord, what are the signs? How will we know when these things are to come, when the end of the age is to be? And he starts to delineate these things. And he talks about the false peace. He talks about the war that will come when nations shall rise against nation. He talks about the famines and the food shortage and the natural disasters that will occur. And then he talks about the death, how many people will die. And so Christ knew exactly what was going to come because he is God. And he was giving the disciples a precursor to what John was going to receive here in the Revelation. And so we know it's true. God gave this to John to give to us. He told his disciples directly these things. And as we get to the fifth seal, we also see that in in Matthew chapter 24. The fifth seal, there's a parallel. In the fifth seal here, we see the prayers of the martyrs, the people who are going to die for Christ in the tribulation. They are praying. 
And as we get into verse 9, it describes their prayers. It says, first of all, and I just lost my place. Let me get back to verse 9. He says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And then verse 10 is their prayer. And they say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So as I mentioned last week, there's forces that are each one of these seals, or behind each one of these seals. The force here in this seal is the prayers of martyred saints. The prayers of martyred saints. Now, again, Christ says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8, he says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. As I mentioned last week, the first four seals happened in the first half of the tribulation. As we get into this seal, this seal is kind of a bridge between the first half and the second half. The people that are martyred are Christians or believers who will die during the tribulation period. Some of them will die in the first half. Many of them will die in the second half. But here we have this point about the midpoint of the tribulation period when the prayers of these saints come before God and these saints, their souls are under the altar. And it says they pray this prayer. How long, Lord, are you going to wait to avenge our death? To, to avenge the, upon the evil ones that have caused this to happen to us. That's their prayer. Lord, give us vengeance. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Christ says this, going on in his discourse. He says, Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So Jesus predicted this very thing as well, that people who are believers will die. They will be killed. Now, we have that happening in our world even today, not on a grand scale, but it is happening. It has happened since the beginning of the church. In fact, it goes back into the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to Cain and Abel, uh, Abel, in a sense, was a martyr. He did what God wanted him to do. He obeyed God And Cain killed him for it because he got upset that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. So in a sense, Abel was a martyr because he died for doing what was right in the Lord's sight. And that's what defines the martyr. They stand up for truth. They stand up for their faith in the eyes of God. They are faithful to God even amidst the persecution. And for that, they are killed because people on earth, and especially Satan, does not like them and does not want to see them conceive or see them succeed. So we have these saved people who are going to die during the tribulation. We call them martyrs. It's going to begin in the first half of the tribulation. It's going to extend into the second half of the tribulation. And in Matthew 24, when Jesus says, these things are the beginning of sorrows, he uses an interesting word there describing not just the first four seals, but this situation here where we have people dying for Christ. The word sorrows that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 is the Greek word odin, okay? And it means travailing. We saw that word in Sunday school. We were reading in in, uh, Revelation. uh, Revelation. I'm going to do this because we're in Romans and Revelation, and I always mix them up. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning, and we were reading about how all creation groans and travails together. That word travailing has to do with birth pangs or the pains of giving birth. Okay, and when Jesus says these are the beginning of sorrows, he's talking about these first four seals, the first four 
uh, tribulations that come upon the earth in those days, including this martyrdom of the saints. And he says, here's the beginning of the birth pains. Just the beginning. Not the ultimate part of it, but just the beginning. Now, we as human beings have a hard time sometimes understanding the difference between the beginning and the real thing, okay? Now, I love my wife, and I don't want to make fun of my wife, but she has given me a perfect illustration, and that's the dangers of being related to the pastor, um, that sometimes events in your life get used as illustrations. The difference between my wife's approach to labor for our first child and for our last child demonstrates a little bit about understanding what Christ was saying when he says this is the beginning of sorrows. With our first child, Bethany, um, obviously we were both novices at this. We didn't do birth before that, so this was brand new to both of us. But I remember with Bethany, my wife started to have Braxton Hicks. If you know anything about pregnancy, it's like false labor, okay? And she felt this. WebMD describes Braxton Hicks as false labor pains that a pregnant, might, pregnant woman might have before true labor, Okay? They're the body's way of getting ready for the real thing, but they don't mean labor has started or is about to begin. Jesus is saying, in a sense, these are Braxton Hicks. We're just getting started here. When my wife with Bethany first started feeling those contractions, you know, she had never experienced this before. And so in her mind, this was it. She was like, it's coming. The baby's here. We got to go now. It's coming. It's coming. And, And I think she was like only 14 weeks along or something. I don't remember. Okay, obviously not full term, okay? But she felt those false labor pains, and immediately her response was, okay, this is bad, we got to go now. And yet that was just the beginning of sorrows in Christ's words, okay? Then she found out several weeks later, at the 40 weeks being completed, what real labor was like. And she didn't have just normal labor. She had what's called coupling contractions. When you have the real hard contraction and they come and then they start to fade away. And before that one goes, another one starts right on top of it. And man, she was hurting. Okay, I could tell. And she had never experienced pains like this before. And that's when the baby came. After 42 hours, I don't remember exactly. It seemed like 42 hours. But it was a long time, eight or ten hours of labor, okay, of these coupling contractions, and eventually the baby was born. You know, it's in that final labor period, and you probably have seen this on TV or maybe even experienced it yourself. When those real contractions hit, when that baby is about to be born, and the pain is so intense, and the wife looks at the husband and said, you did this, and I'm going to kill you if I survive this, right? That's how they act. My wife didn't say that. She may have thought it, but she didn't say it out loud anyway, okay? So, but it gives us a great picture of what Christ was talking about when he says the beginning of sorrows. What we've seen so far is just the beginning of sorrows, Braxton Hicks, the false labor. And to us, we think, man, there's famine, there's death, there's pestilence, there's war. How could it get any worse? And Christ says it's just getting started. Okay, as we go through the seals and as we go through the book of Revelation, You're going to see the real labor pains that are to come. But what we're talking about, even with the death of the saints of Christ, is just the beginning. It's those false labors to to prepare people for the real thing. 
And that's why when you get to the end of chapter 6, even just the sixth seal, we haven't even gotten into the seventh seal. By the sixth seal, people are saying to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, from the wrath of the one who sits on the throne. We can't handle this. And that's just the beginning. And so it gets bad. You know, this coupling contractions that my wife had when one pain was started on top of the other one, that's exactly what God's judgments are going to do as we get to the end of that tribulation period. Before one judgment is finished, another one is poured out, and it's just compounded one upon the other upon the other. And there's no way we can imagine in our minds how bad it's going to be on this earth. But that is the essence of God's judgment. So Christ uses this term birth pangs here to describe the pain of the tribulation period. And it's this pain here that the, the, the martyrs, the people who are being killed for Christ, are suffering. The point is, though, not to focus on the pain. Because the pain or these contractions, these birth pangs, in a sense, lead to the great event. Now, in pregnancy, that great event is when the baby is born. And I've had met many mothers, including my wife, say, when that baby's there and you hold that baby for the first time, you forget about the pain. You forget about everything you've gone through for the nine months because of the blessing that you hold in your hands. And that's exactly the picture that Christ is giving us. What is this great event that all of these birth pangs are leading up to? The kingdom of Christ on earth, the millennial kingdom. That is the great culmination of history. And so the birth pangs and all of these labor pains that are going to be experienced on earth through the tribulation lead up to the great event, which is Christ's second coming when he establishes his kingdom on earth. So here in the fifth fifth seal, we have this birth pang. And things will start to get serious a little bit more than they have been, even with famine and death and war that have been upon the earth up to this point. Now it starts to ramp up even more. So in the fifth seal, we see the the prayers of the martyred saints. Now, I want to just give you some information about these martyrs. First of all, who are they? Who are these martyred saints? It says the seal reveals these souls under the altar. Now, how did they get under the altar? If you go to verse 9 in chapter 6, it says they were killed. It says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. They were killed. They were murdered, executed. Okay? So we can safely call these people martyrs. They didn't die by natural causes or even necessarily in war. They were executed for their faith, as a martyr truly is. So after we've seen this false peace, the war, the famine, the pestilence, even widespread death where a fourth of the world's population is killed, Okay, now we have these martyrs that are dying for Christ. And that's exactly what Christ said would happen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, that we already looked at. So this persecution that is going to lead to the martyrdom is not your average inconvenience or offense that's caused to believers by unbelievers. We talk about persecution in our world today. We have no idea how bad this is going to be. Okay, we look at other countries, Muslim countries, where people are being beheaded for their faith because they don't convert or people are being um, exiled from countries, or separated from families, or whatever. That persecution is nothing compared to what the Great Tribulation is going to bring. Okay, this is going to be greater than anything. This will be an organized seeking out and execution of all believers 
kind of like we have seen happen in fascist and communist countries in our history. Where, like in, in Nazi Germany, where they sought out, corralled, and then put in prison camps all the Jews that they could round up. And many of them were killed. Okay? That's how it's going to be for Christians. But worse. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought the church has been raptured already. So how can there be Christians on earth? These are people who are going to be saved during the tribulation period. The church is gone. We've been raptured, and so we're in heaven. But these people will be on earth. But it's not just government that's going to be persecuting and killing believers during the tribulation. It's actually going to come at the hand of the church. Now, the church, the real church, the true church won't be here anymore. We'll be in heaven. But there is a false church. That still remains. Remember Christ's parable about the wheat and the tares. When Christ says he's going to separate between the true and the false. And he's going to harvest the wheat. And he's going to pull up the tares and cast them into the fire to be burned. This is an example of that where he takes the wheat in the rapture. But the tares are still left. They call themselves the church. They look like the church. They sound like the church. But they're not the church. And it's through this church that much of this persecution is going to come. Isn't it amazing through history, when you look at the persecution against true believers, that much of it comes from the hand of people who call themselves religious people? I mean, you go back in history and look at the, the, the great, uh, great Inquisition by the Catholic Church. For many hundreds of years, they would kill anybody who didn't agree with them. Okay? You talk about tribulation, persecution, the false church that will be on earth is going to perpetuate a lot of this martyrdom. In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, it says, On her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Talking about all the mother of all false religions. Of course, we know Satan is the perpetuator of that. But all false religions would be considered the false church in a sense. And it says, And of the abominations of the earth, referring to the idolatry that will happen. Just an absolute abandonment of focus on God and worshiping anything else. And at this point, worship of the Antichrist. He says, and then in verse 6 in Revelation 17, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints. Religion will be the main source of this martyrdom against believers. False religion. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, again, we see the parallels in, Matthew's, or in uh, Jesus' discourse in Matthew 24, verse 10. We've gone up to verse 9. We saw people will be led astray. We saw people turning against one another in verse 10. He says, many, at that time, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now think about... Many churches, and I say that just in name only today, that people gather but really have no love for each other. You know, that's one of the things I appreciate about Bunker Hill. As soon as I came here, I could tell people, for the most part, cared about each other. It was a a love for each other that uh, permeated the, the congregation. But there's many churches who don't experience that love. People gather for their own purposes. They do what they want. They get their own religion for, for whatever benefits they get out of it, they really don't care about each other. And in this kind of persecution, the false Christians are weeded out from the true Christians. Okay? When persecution comes and now your life is on, on trial, 
because of your faith, you know who the true believers are. And Christ told us in Matthew 24, verse 10, at that time, many will fall away. They're not true believers. First John 2 tells us, uh, Jesus said, because they were not of us, they left us. He says, you can tell the ones who are not real. You can tell the ones who are not true believers because they don't persevere. In the face of persecution, when it gets tough, if there's something that appeals to them more than the church, more than their religion, they go after that. Instead, they're not of us, John said. And here Jesus says in Matthew 24, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. Jesus predicted this martyrdom that was going to happen. Their hate and lack of love will cause them to deny Christ and turn in true believers to save themselves. Sound familiar? I mean, again, we've seen little instances of this throughout history in different circumstances, but this is going to be the epitome of that. So here we have believers during the tribulation who are going to be killed for their faith. Why? Because it says in the end of verse 9, and for the testimony which they held. Okay? They were true to the word of God and they had a testimony of Christ. They shared the truth with other people, that means. It doesn't mean they just lived quietly and hid in their homes. It means they boldly proclaimed the truth. Now, at this point, remember, the church is taken up. There will be 144 Jewish evangelists that God ordains on the earth to spread the truth. There will be the two witnesses. And in, further in Revelation, actually indicates there may be an angel who is flying above the earth proclaiming the truth. But people will hear the truth. The problem is that Satan will be in control and does not want that truth spread. The main perpetuators of that are believers. Because that is their life, or it should be. And so Satan, through the Antichrist, through the false church, through the one world government, will try to silence that voice of these believers. And the best way to do that is killing them. It's not being uh, suspended on Facebook, okay? We think that's such a bad thing. These people are just flat out destroyed. They're killed for their faith. So it's ten times worse than what we can imagine. How many of these martyrs are going to be there? We don't know. At this point, there's some. We know that. He just says martyrs. By the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be a lot. Now, in Revelation 7, just one chapter ahead, we see these martyrs here in chapter 6, but then chapter 7 kind of takes a break from the seals, and it gives us this parenthetical look at these martyrs. And let me just read for you a passage out of the next chapter, Revelation, verse 9 through 14 of chapter 7. John says, after these things I looked and beheld a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Okay, so this great nation is standing there, a great assembly of people worshiping the Lord. That's what this symbolizes. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We've heard that before. Okay, that's the worship of God in heaven. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So there's this great assembly of people now added to this worship that we saw in chapters 4 and 5, now added in chapter 7. And, and 
John goes on and he says in verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they and where have they come from? So they've appeared in heaven. And the elder says, Who are these people? What is this great multitude here? And John says in verse 14, I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How many people are going to die for their faith during the tribulation period? A great multitude which no one can number. That's what the Bible tells us. I've heard some theologians and pastors say that the seven years of the tribulation may be the greatest revival we have ever seen in the history of the earth. More people will be saved in that seven years than possibly before that in the entire history of the world. Now, I don't know. We, can't, we can speculate about that. But we know what John says here in Revelation 7. There's a lot that are going to come to Christ, and there are a lot that will die for their faith. So that is this, these martyrs. Why are they under the altar? That's the question I've heard, and some people ask me, what is this altar? It's the altar in heaven. There you go. That's my answer. The altar in heaven. Which altar? I don't know. It doesn't say which altar. There's speculation. Theologians have uh, commented on this. You know, commentators, I've, I've read several commentators about, you know, what is this talking about, the altar? It's the altar in heaven. Some say that it represents the altar of burnt incense, which was in the temple because of the prayers. That's what represented the prayers, the incense burn going up to heaven represented the prayers of saints. And so they say maybe it's the altar of incense because these people are now praying to God for their, for their vengeance to be carried out on their behalf. Others say that this altar represents the altar of burnt sacrifice. Obviously, these people have been sacrificed for Christ. And in the temple, when they would sacrifice an animal, they would kill it, and then they would pour its blood at the foot of the altar. These people are under the altar, or the souls are under the altar. A great symbolism there. Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us those details. But there's some kind of altar in heaven And the souls of these people are under it, and they're praying to God from it. They're waiting for the glorified body. They're just souls. John says they're souls. They're not actually glorified people. They're souls. So it's people during the tribulation who have died. Their souls have gone to heaven, and now they're waiting to be resurrected. Now, the church has already got the glorified body. We get that at the rapture. So our turn comes first. These people have been saved during the tribulation. They've died. Their souls are in heaven. And that's why they're praying. Because they're waiting for this glorified body to come, for vengeance to be carried out upon those who have uh, perpetuated this evil on the earth. Their souls are there waiting in heaven. And then we come to this prayer that they have. And I'm going to focus on this for the rest of our time this morning. Because he says, and they prayed, verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. I want you to think about their situation, okay? These are believers. They believe the truth. They've accepted Christ as their Savior. They are now in heaven watching God pour out his judgment on the earth in sin, for sin. But God hasn't gotten to the people who killed them yet. And so they're praying and saying, how long do we have to wait? How long is it going to be before you take care of these people? You've done some judgment, but how long is it going to be? Do we have to wait to have our deaths avenged? 
And look at God's answer to them. Verse 11, I'm going to come back to this. And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Remember, we're about the midpoint of tribulation. And here's these saints in heaven saying, God, how long do we have to wait before you take vengeance upon these people? And God says, hold on. My plan's not done yet. Just wait because there's a lot more people that have to die just like you did. But here's this prayer that they pray for vengeance upon their enemies. Now, I want to talk about this prayer because this has come up in conversations. Just recently, my son is taking a a class in school, and they have talked about psalms. They're they're studying the psalms in some of the Old Testament books. And the, the topic of what they call imprecatory prayer came up in the book of Psalms. And there are many psalms in which David and other authors of the psalms have prayed for God's judgment to come upon their enemies, to destroy their enemies. Okay, You can read that. In fact, let me share with you a few of those. In Psalm 69, verses 20 through 28, let their table, talking about the enemies of God, let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for the welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not. Make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate. Let none dwell in tents, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. That's a very straightforward and actually severe imprecatory prayer. Praying for the judgment of God upon the enemies of God, that they would literally be destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth with no hope. That's the prayer that's offered here. Chapter 94, Psalm 94, there's another very similar one. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? He goes on and talks about how they continue to persecute the people of God. And and it's a prayer for God's judgment. Psalm 109, same thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It just says, uh, they've rewarded me evil for good, hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. And he goes on and on in in Psalm 109 about asking for judgment against God's enemies. And so we have these examples in the Bible of these prayers called imprecatory prayers that are praying for judgment, literally, against the enemies of God, for them to be destroyed. And that's how serious it gets. Psalm 79 is another one. Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee. Okay? So they're praying for the judgment of God. That's what these prayers are that are being offered by these saints, under the, uh, the souls of the saints under the altar, at the midpoint, roughly, of the tribulation period. The reason is we have to, they understand, these, these people understand God. They see him in his fullness at that point. And they understand the entire character of God. And they know that God is a God of justice and vengeance and wrath. The Bible teaches that. He's not just a God of love and mercy and grace. 
There are many people in our world who want to make God into just a God of mercy and love and grace, and that's all we need to know. No. We have to understand God's judgment and justice and wrath against sin. If we don't get that part of it, that we deserve to be judged and we deserve the wrath of God because we're sinners, we never get to the grace and why we need the grace. Okay, so we have to see that God is a God of wrath and judgment. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he calls himself a God of judgment. He says, to me belongeth vengeance, to recompense their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people, it means shall judge on behalf of his people. It will judge their enemies and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone, there is none shut up or left. So this passage goes on and talks about how God is going to reward those that hate him and reject him with judgment. So God is a God of judgment. We have to understand that. Isaiah 59 says, according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. And in the the chapter of Micah, chapter 5, that starts with, O thou Bethlehem of Ephrata, though thou be be little among nations, you will be great. And it talks about the prophecy of Christ's birth. But later on, still referring to Christ, these are Christ's words, he says, And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as have they have not heard. So God is a God of extreme judgment and wrath, like we can never imagine. And his judgment will be far worse than anybody ever could think of. That's how he describes himself. And then we come to this Psalm 64, verses 7 through 10. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. And in the midst of that judgment, here's this verse 10 in Psalm 64. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. The righteous will be glad at the judgment of God, is what that verse says. And we should be, as these martyrs were looking forward to. Because the judgment of God is for the purpose of eradicating sin. It's to drive sin out. And that's exactly what God's doing in the tribulation period. Destroying evil, destroying the people and systems and the earth that perpetuates evil. That's the purpose of his judgment. Now, judgment then is kind of a bittersweet thing. I mean, you think about it. Yes, we want God's judgment upon sin, but do you really want God's judgment upon your sin? See, that's where Christ comes in. He's already paid the price for the judgment on our sin. And so we won't have to experience that judgment. But that judgment will be executed upon the wicked and those who reject Christ. And so there's a bittersweet sense of, yes, we rejoice in God's judgment, but we are sorry for the people that are going to be judged. I mean, no believer, if we truly are a believer, can rejoice in that people die without Christ. That's our purpose, right? It's to be light and salt, to bring the message of the good news to a lost world so that they can experience the redemption of Jesus Christ. So they won't have to experience this judgment. 
So when God demonstrates his judgment, when he executes judgment upon people, we rejoice in that he is glorified in judging sin, and yet we grieve in our souls that people have to experience that because they've rejected God. This is not my example, so I can't claim credit for it, but I heard one guy say, it's like eating a Twinkie, okay? You put it in your mouth, and immediately it tastes great. As soon as it hits your stomach, man, do you regret it, okay? Because you know it's not good for you. It tastes good, but it doesn't, it doesn't sit well once you swallow the thing. And that's the judgment of God. In fact, in Revelation 10, we're going to see, this is John's exact response to the judgment of God. Revelation 10, verses 9 and 10. John speaking, I went to the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. Talking about the book of God's judgment that we're seeing here. And he said unto him, and he said unto me, take it and eat it. And it shall make thy be- belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. There's that bittersweet experience of God's judgment. Yes, we rejoice at the fact that God is destroying and judging sin. That's his purpose. But then we think about the people who have to experience that. And we sorrow for them. Because we don't want to see anybody go into an eternity without Christ. So you have this all through scripture. This statement about God's judgment, about his justice, about his vengeance upon sin then what do we do with all the passages that talk about loving one another, right? Even Christ said, love your enemies. I mean, this doesn't start in the New Testament. You go all the way back to Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 through 22, and it tells us there, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. You help and love your enemies, right? Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Remember, that was, in a sense, the command that God gave to Israel. Destroy these people, right? So you've heard that you say, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Not for them to be destroyed, but for their redemption. He says, and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Our prayer of concern for those who persecute us shows us that the Holy Spirit's fruit of love is truly in us. And he says those prayers will not be prayers for judgment. They'll be prayers for deliverance, for redemption for those people. Luke chapter 6 says the same thing. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, pray for them which despitefully use you. Unto them that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. To him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. He says, treat your enemies with love. To the extreme. You know, if they come and take your stuff, don't complain. If they want your coat, give them your shirt also. If they want you to go two miles, go three miles. Go farther. That was Jesus' words. In fact, remember, Jesus hanging on the cross looked down at the people who had just crucified him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
So how do we balance out this love for our enemies and these imprecatory prayers for judgment that we see here in Revelation chapter 6? Do they contradict each other? I mean, how do we approach our enemies then? Paul echoed the same thing. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and, and curse not. Romans chapter 12. Here's the answer. And we have to consider the circumstances under which all of these commands are given. Okay? Go back to the Old Testament. When Israel was going into the promised land, what was the command that God gave them? Destroy all of the Canaanites. Wipe out all of the idolaters and their children who have been offered to idols. Get rid of everything because we have to start pure. We have to remain pure, and we cannot have that influence in this land. That was God's command to Israel, to destroy all of them. So when you look at Psalm 9, I'm sorry, Psalm, when you get into the Psalms, and Psalm, especially Psalm 69 as we read this morning, what we have are people who are experiencing the failure of the people of God to do what God told them to do. And so those idolaters and the sin that they perpetuated still existed and influenced in a great way the people of God and caused them to abandon God. And so these imprecatory prayers are praying, are, are being prayed in the sense of God, destroy the sin as you originally intended so that we can be brought back to you. That's these imprecatory prayers. Now, we do want God's judgment to be executed upon the earth and against sin. But by the time you get to Christ, and now Christ is teaching, you've heard it said to love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's saying, no, I say love your enemy too. Show them favor. Do good things for them. He taught us to love our enemies, not to pray for their destruction. Now, we still want, we still want the sin and evil to go away, but we don't want people to go to hell. And that's the difference. Because what Christ brought was grace. And the whole system of salvation that Christ established was based on faith through grace. That's where salvation is established. Now, faith was the basis of salvation all through the Old Testament. But they were in the, if you want to call it uh, a period, they were called the period of the law, okay? They were under the law. That was their guide. And Hebrews tells us it was the law that brought us up to Christ, that led us up to the point where Christ came. So the law was kind of, here's our standard. We have to live by this. And then when Christ came, Christ fulfilled the law, and now he becomes the standard. And he says, we're going to raise the bar now. It's not just about obeying the law. It's about loving each other the way God loves you. That's why Christ was there. And so his prayers were for people to be forgiven, not destroyed, because he didn't want to see people go to hell. He cried over Jerusalem and his own people so many times because they kept rejecting God, and he knew where they were headed. So this prayer of the martyrs under the altar is an imprecatory prayer. How do we justify this? Remember, when we're, we're talking about here, the age of grace is what we call the church age. The tribulation period is specifically defined in Scripture as the time of judgment. Grace is done. 
doesn't mean people aren't going to get saved, but God's grace to the earth is done. And now he's in the process of pouring out judgment and eventually will destroy all evildoers and the earth with them so that sin can be eradicated once and for all. So that's their, that, that's their there's position here. As these prayers are offered from under the altar, we are in a period of God's judgment against sin. And so they're praying for exactly what's happening in front of their eyes. So we have a justification for these prayers against the enemies of God, for them to be destroyed, to avenge the deaths of these ones under the altar, because they're not in the age of grace anymore. God's grace comes to an end at the end of the church age, and now he pours out his judgment upon the earth, and that's what they're praying for, exactly what God said he was going to do. So how does all of this fit with us? Okay, what is the point for us? First of all, God does answer our sincere and fervent prayers, but not always in our way and in our time. These souls wanted vengeance to be carried out now. I mean, they were there. Some of them probably, I I know it's not in the time perspective in heaven, but they had been there for three and a half years or three years. They're still waiting. They're like, okay, God, you know, we see your judgment happening. When are you going to get to these people to avenge us? And God says, wait, not yet. And I don't know that they expected the answer that God gave them. He said, wait, not yet, because there's still a lot more people like you that have to die for Christ. Now think about that statement. God says, I'm not going to execute judgment upon them yet because more believers have to die first. We go, wow. Isn't that heartless? No, actually, it's not. Okay? What would be heartless would be to leave people who are trusting Christ on the earth to have to experience the full judgment of God as it poured out. It was God's mercy that allowed these people to be killed and brought to heaven to escape that judgment that's being poured out on the earth. And God says, there's still more that I want to deliver from the real hard stuff that is yet to come. And so I'm going to allow them to be killed so they can be here with me. Safe. Apart from judgment. Delivered. Right? That's what we pray for, deliverance. When we get sick, we pray for God's healing, right? We want to feel better. We want to be healed. From our perspective, that means that our physical bodies start working correctly again. And we can start feeling better physically. What is ultimate healing in God's perspective? For us to be apart from sin. Not to have to suffer any of it. And so when we pray for healing and God allows somebody to die, especially a believer, that's the ultimate answer to healing, isn't it? Because now they will never suffer again. And so from God's perspective, he healed them perfectly, forever. And we look at it and go, they died. That's awful. But the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What could be better? I mean, as believers, that's what we look forward to. And so here we have these believers present with the Lord, apart from the suffering. 
And God says, yeah, there's more that I want to deliver from the suffering that is still to come. So God doesn't answer our fervent and sincere prayers always in our way, in our time frame, but he does answer them. He always answers prayers, especially when we pray according to his will. He also, does not, he also brings judgment upon those who have done us wrong. He will avenge sin, but it's not going to be on our terms. We don't get to make that decision. That's why Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged, in Matthew chapter 7. Because we don't get to make the decision when somebody who does wrong has to be punished and how they will be punished. That's not our job. We are not the judge. God is. He will bring judgment upon those who have wronged us and those who have perpetuated sin, but it's in his time and it's in his way. That's what he's telling these souls under the altar. And so our desire should not be for God to destroy everyone that has sinned against us. That's not a love for each other. That's not a love for our enemies or for people in general. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, this is the prophet Ezekiel saying, Say unto them, God speaking through the prophet, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. If that's God's desire, that should be our desire. Not that people are destroyed, but that people are delivered, that they're redeemed. They can be safe from that judgment. We don't want to see people go through that judgment. So our prayer should be the same thing that God prays, that, people, that God would save these people, that he would deliver them from evil and from the judgment that is to come. Because our, their judgment is not our concern. It's not in our realm of authority or our prerogative. That's totally up to God. How he does that and when he does that. And so just as it's not for these martyrs to be worried about when judgment would be dished out on their behalf, our only concern is that God be glorified in how he does things in his way and in his time. See, when we talk about glorifying God, it's about reflecting God in everything including our motivations, including our desires. And if we truly want what God wants, then we'll be fine to let God do things in his way. If we complain or buck against God's way and God's timing and say, God, you're not doing it fast enough. You're not doing it the way I want you to do it. We fail to glorify God. And that's sin on our, half, our behalf. God demonstrated his love toward people, and that's our job, is to pass that message of love to people so they can be delivered. Psalm 37, I give this to a lot of people who are going through especially persecution or just uh, being oppressed by people. Psalm 37 starts this way, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. But you trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Our concern is not how God judges or when God judges those people who have wronged us. Our only concern is to be faithful, to persevere in faith, and to pray for other people in love. That they might be delivered from God's judgment. We need to leave judgment up to God 
and practice grace and love toward all mankind now as Jesus demonstrated in his lifetime. Now, Jesus told people that judgment was going to come upon them, but he didn't wish it upon them. He didn't say, I hope you die. I hope you end up in hell. No, his desire was exactly the opposite of that. That's why he came to the earth. So in verse 11 in Revelation 6, these souls receive their answer. Wait. More people have to die. God's plan's not accomplished yet. God is not ready to execute judgment upon these particular sinners for this particular, uh, this particular sin. So this fifth seal, these prayers of the martyred saints, begins in the first half of the tribulation, extends to the second half, because God says, I'm not done yet. More people are going to die, but that's okay. That's my will for them. You may not understand it, but that's all right. You don't need to understand it. All you need to do is trust God. Patience is probably one of the most difficult things for us as believers to learn and practice, right? Here's how it works. When we pray for patience, and we know we should have patience because patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? We, okay, yeah, I got to have patience. Lord, teach me patience. So how does God teach us patience? He puts us in a position where we have to wait, where things are out of our control. We can't do anything. And then we go, I don't understand, God. Why is all this happening here? Why can't you fix it now? Because we just ask for patience. And God puts us in a situation where we have to learn to practice patience. And that's how we develop patience. James chapter 3 says, let patience have, I'm sorry, James chapter 1 says, let patience have her perfect work. That you may be entire, complete, perfect, lacking nothing. In other words, let the circumstances that God puts you in develop that true faith. Strengthen your faith. Because the more you have to wait on God, the more you have to trust in God. If God did everything just like that, what patience do we need? What trust do we need? God says, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, God, do it. Okay, you did it. Good. But when he says, I'm going to do this, and we go, still waiting. Didn't happen yet. Are we still going to believe God? Are we going to hold him to be true? Or are we going to go, God, you messed up. You didn't do it right away. How come you didn't fix things? It's the same answer he gave to the souls under the altar. Be patient. Wait, because I'm not done doing my work yet. And we don't have to know and we don't have to understand how it's all going to work. We just need to trust God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the glorious rapture for us in this church that are coming. Not just in this church, but the church of Christ. We look forward to that, right? I mean, there are days when I look at the day before me and I go, Lord, can you please come back now? So I don't have to go through this day. And he doesn't. But that's okay. He is coming back. We know that. But he'll do it when he's ready. When things are just right. And then we'll get to go home. And Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 13. That the very end of the chapter. The last verse of chapter 15. Talking about the rapture of Christ. I'm sorry, the rapture, when Christ takes us up to heaven, when we will get that incorruptible body, we won't be, be 
under the, the curse of sin anymore. We won't suffer anymore. We'll have an incorruptible body. And then he finishes like this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In the meantime, God says, keep being faithful. Keep persevering. Keep doing the things that I told you to do. Keep loving people. Keep praying for your enemies. Keep praying for the people who persecute you and despise you. Show love to them. Spread the message of the gospel so that fewer people will have to go through the judgment. And when God's ready, he'll come back and deliver us. And then he will judge sin in its fullness. But that's not up to us. We're not here to condemn and judge other people. We're not here to complain about our circumstances. We're not here to even try to control things in our life. We are here to be light and salt, to testify of the truth, to trust God that he will do things the right way in the right time, to be patient, to wait. And if God ordains to die. But that's perfect deliverance. And so we look forward either to the rapture or to death, which delivers us from the judgment, if we're believers. But we have to be patient. So God gives us the same message he gave to the souls under the altar. Wait, let me finish my work, and then all will be made right. But it's a test of our faith. Are we going to let patience do its perfect work in us? Or are we going to keep fighting God because he didn't do it our way? That's basically what he told the souls under the altar. I have a plan. It'll happen. I said a judgment was going to happen. Just let me do it in my way in my time. And it's the same message for us. i got to stop there. I told you I didn't know if I was going to get to the sixth seal. We don't have time unless you guys want to stay for supper. Okay? So we'll close here with a word of prayer. We'll attack the sixth seal next week. Lord, thank you for your love for us. As your son was upon the earth, he demonstrated how we ought to live and how we ought to approach those people who persecute us, who are evil toward us, those people who perpetuate sin and bring in our lives suffering because of it. And we want to be delivered, and we want your judgment to happen We pray that, but we know that we have to wait for your time. We have to wait for you to do it in your way. So, Lord, teach us to be patient in our lives. Lord, show us the path that you want us to walk today. Show us how we can be faithful in the things you've called us to today and help us not to worry about how you're going to deal with other people because you will do everything right. You are a righteous God. We need to trust that. You are a God of justice. We need to trust that. And you are a God of love. And we need to trust that as well. So, Lord, help us to be faithful, to be patient until the day you call us home. And to just wait on you for that judgment on sin to be poured out in your time and in your way. We thank you for your truth today. Help us to go forward taking this truth, living more like your son, doing those things you want us to do being faithful until you call us home. And we thank you 
look forward to that day when we'll be with Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to have you turn to 270 in your hymn books. This is our closing hymn, The Haven of Rest. The picture in this hymn is that we have a safe harbor who is Jesus Christ. And in that